This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hi, I'm Dan Pramat, and welcome to Axios Recap, where we dig into one big story. Today is Wednesday, June 9th. Temperatures are up, U.S. COVID deaths are down, and we're focused on the next mayor of America's largest city. This Saturday, New York City voters will be asked to begin picking their next mayor via early voting. Actually, they'll be asked to pick the Democratic Party's nominee for their next mayor, but according to most experts, that might as well be the same thing. Why it matters is that New York isn't just America's biggest city by population. It's also the world's financial hub. It's media hub the place whose mayors often go on to major nationwide political prominence. So four things to know before the votes begin getting tallied. One, the incumbent, Bill de Blasio, isn't running because of term limits. But even if he could run, no one really thinks he would have won. Two, this will be the first time New Yorkers have ever been asked to use ranked choice voting, which is very different than just checking the box of your favorite candidate. It could make the results take longer to tabulate and may mean the person leading after round one doesn't ultimately end up in Gracie Mansion. Three, you probably know at least one of the candidates, Andrew Yang, who ran for president in this past cycle. But his name recognition doesn't make him anything close to a sure bet to win. In fact, there arguably isn't a real frontrunner. Four, the top issue right now appears to be crime and policing, with COVID abating. So today we want to speak with Dana Rubenstein, a Metro reporter at the New York Times who's been covering the race, about what to know about the candidates, the switch over to ranked choice voting, and what to watch heading into this weekend's early voting. That conversation in 15 seconds. We're joined now by Dana Rubenstein, a Metro Desk reporter at the New York Times, who I spoke with earlier this week while I was in Washington, D.C. Dana, let's start big picture here. You're in New York City, so there's probably a local answer to this question. But for everyone else, why does the mayor of New York City matter nationally? New York City is the largest city in the United States, and it is arguably United States only global capital. It's the financial capital of the United States, the cultural capital. I hope none of this is offending you in, in DC. So, you know, people look to the New York City mayor for, um, some form of, of leadership and the policies that the mayor enacts in New York City are often very influential on a national and sometimes international level as well. By the way, I'm a Boston person at heart, so I am offended by New York just, just in general. I'm wondering, though, you know, New Yorkers have been kind of waiting to replace de Blasio for, it seems like, almost since the day after he got into office. Are, are you surprised that at this moment there is no clear front runner? No, I, only because there are so many candidates. And the this is the first open mayor's race in eight years, and it's happening at a time of really unique turbulence in the city's history. So a lot of people just jumped in. And the terms of the debate have continued to change over the course of this race, which has been going on, you know, more than a year now. So as the terms of debate continue to change, the race remains in flux. One year ago, almost to the date, the, the city and many cities around the country were, were riven by 
protests surrounding George Floyd's killing at the hands of the police and the defund the police movement was gaining steam. And that was really sort of an idea that was really animating the, the mayor's race now one year later with crime rising, shootings on the rise and the recent murder of a 10 year old boy in Queens policing and, and public safety are really the issue that is driving the debate. And within that, in terms of kind of the most important ones, or at least the ones, say, leading in the polls, can you put them into context a little bit vis-a-vis that kind of crime slash defund the police debate? Sure. So you could argue that there are four top candidates right now. You've got Eric Adams, Andrew Yang, and Catherine Garcia, who are all pretty moderate on the question of policing and do not embrace the defund the police rhetoric. And then you have Maya Wiley, who is the candidate backed by progressive organizations in New York City, who is, you know, she doesn't embrace the term defund the police, but she is calling for removing a billion dollars from the police department's budget and sort of fundamentally changing how policing works in New York City. And Eric Adams is a former police officer, a former cop. Has he been able to gain because the terms of the debate have changed among the Democratic electorate? Yeah, I think so. He is a former police captain, but he is also a former police reformer. He founded a group called 100 Blacks in Law Enforcement. And so he's for decades walked this very interesting line where he's both within the police and someone who defends and embraces policing, but who has also called for reform of that same police department. He has benefited tremendously from the way the the debate has changed surrounding policing in recent months. And I think he has been buoyed as a result. And that's why he is, according to some polls, the, the clear front runner in the race. And you mentioned Maya Wiley on the other side of this. AOC obviously endorsed her the other day. Do you feel that endorsement is actually going to move any votes? Or if you're somebody who cares about AOC's endorsement, you are voting for her anyway? I think it will move some votes. One problem for the progressive side of this election is that that it's been really, um, they've not been unified. So you've had three different candidates. You've had Scott Stringer, you've had, who's the New York City Comptroller. You've had Diane Morales, who's a former executive of a big nonprofit. And you've had Maya Wiley. And the left has had, until recently, been unable to coalesce behind one candidate. Fortunately for Maya, the other two candidates have have had really serious issues with their campaigns that seem to have taken them out of contention. And so now with just a few weeks left, the left is sort of belatedly coalescing behind Maya. For national listeners, of all the people you listed, Andrew Yang is probably the one that most people have actually heard of because he obviously ran for president. Why hasn't he gotten more traction or been a clear frontrunner given the national profile? Or, or is that his problem, that he's got a national profile and, and people inside of New York don't quite view him as somebody inside of New York? It's a good question. He was the clear front runner for months and months and months by virtue of his name recognition and his natural charisma. As is often the case with early front runners, they are subject to the most scrutiny from the press. And I think that as a result, he's begun to deflate a bit. I think what that scrutiny has revealed is it's he I mean from the start he was an outsider candidate he's lived in New York City for 25 years but he has never voted for in a mayor's race he 
doesn't have a lot of sort of built in ties to the New York City political structure and has faced a lot of questions about how well he knows the city the way um, people for who are running for mayor typically do. Dan, as you said, this race has been going on for over a year. In covering it, what is the moment or two that has really stood out to you? I, I would say that the the two moments that stand out for me represent sort of the two poles of this policing debate. And the first instance would probably be the defund the police protest last year, which seemed to sort of temporarily cast doubt on the viability of Eric Adams as a candidate, you know, a, a former police officer who really does embrace the role of policing in in New York City. And then conversely, I think the the shooting of this 10-year-old boy in Rockaway, Queens, has sort of captured a completely inverse moment in the race for mayor, which is the fact that public safety is anim- animating the debate now, and it seems to have completely changed the terms of the race. New York City is going to do ranked choice voting for the first time ever in this primary. How does that work? Basically, if you are a primary voter, you can rank up to five candidates in order of preference. And then once all the votes are in, the Board of Elections tabulates, you know, runs the numbers the, the candidate, and there are going to be 13 Democrats on the ballot. The candidate who receives the fewest votes, first choice votes, is eliminated. And then whoever voted for that candidate, their second choice votes will be counted instead. And then the BOE, the Board of Elections, will tabulate all the votes all over again. And the process will continue until there is one winner. Do you think the city has adequately prepared New Yorkers for what everybody is going to be a new way of voting? It's hard to say. I, some people find the whole concept very confusing. I think the more you think about it, the more confusing it becomes, especially when you try to game out the system. But on the flip side, I think that the act of ranking candidates in order of preference is a very simple one. Do the campaigns think they've gotten their head around it? Because I assume a lot of these kind of veteran New York City political types are very much about, we just need to get this person's vote. It's now a different math they're doing. Yeah, I think several of them have hired consultants on ranked choice voting because it is a relatively new system in the United States. And it is really hard to game out. It's sort of mathematical in nature and you really need to visualize it. And, I, you know, I think everyone has had a hard time getting their heads around how to strategize in that context. I also think it won't necessarily matter all that much at the end of the day, because I know some studies show that in 95% of ranked choice voting elections, the person who's in first in the first round is in first in the final round, too. New York City at the moment obviously has a Democratic mayor, but Rudy Giuliani, Mike Bloomberg recently have both been mayor of the city. Is the winner of the Democratic primary considered to be the ultimate winner of the mayor's seat, or does a Republican have a chance? I think it's almost certain that the winner of the primary will win the mayoral election. I mean, stranger things have happened that might change that dynamic, but the voter registration here is like more than six to one Democrat to Republican. And the two Republicans who are running it, it's hard to imagine them being able to galvanize many Democrats to vote in their favor. Dana Rubenstein of The New York Times, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome back. What we're watching today is El Salvador. 
which just became the first country to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. A supermajority of the Central American nation's legislature voted in favor of the so-called Bitcoin law, after which the price of Bitcoin shot up by about 5%. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that Bitcoin replaces the U.S. dollar in El Salvador. It's still the official currency there. But it does mean that Salvadorans can now display prices in Bitcoin, pay their taxes in Bitcoin, and aren't subject to capital gains taxes on Bitcoin. The upside? Well, that's the potential for financial inclusion, because around 70% of Salvadorans don't have access to traditional financial services. The downside, though, is that Bitcoin still remains insanely volatile, and thus very difficult for people to reasonably use for everyday purchases. Looking ahead, the big question now is if any other country follows El Salvador's lead. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Naomi Shaven, Sabina Singani, and Alex Sugiara. Please be sure to leave us a review and subscribe or follow the podcast. Have a great national Donald Duck Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.